Well, shalom, and welcome to our final video in our polygyny series, and our third and final video in our grouping of rebuttals to various ministries around the internet who have done a video opposing the scriptural practice of polygyny. Now, in tonight's video, we're going to be rebutting a ministry called Kingdom in Context, and also another ministry titled Wretched TV or the Wretched Network. But before we get into that, let's go ahead and do a quick review of what we've accomplished so far during the course of this series on polygyny. In our first video, we went over the introduction and the terminology that we'll be using in the course of this video. In our second video in the series, we went over various polygynists of the scriptures like Solomon, David, Moses, etc. In our third video in the series, we went over polygyny by the scriptures, how the scriptures regulate and guide people in the practice of this form of marriage. In our fourth video, we went over polygyny throughout history, mainly focusing on Christians and after the first century up until today. In our fifth video, we went over patriarchy and how that's important not only to polygyny especially, but also monogamy. In our sixth video, we went over the advantages and the disadvantages of polygyny. In our seventh video, we started the first in a grouping of rebuttal videos, and that one was a rebuttal to a video put out by a ministry called 119 Ministries. In our eighth video in the series, in our second rebuttal video, we did a video rebutting a video put out by a Messianic teacher named David Wilbur and a mainstream preacher named Mike Winger. And now finally in this video, we're going to be finishing up the grouping of rebuttal videos and also we're going to be finishing up the entire series. So if you haven't seen the previous videos, go back and watch those for teachings on how polygyny comes from the scriptures and also the rebuttal videos to answer common objections that most people have to polygyny. Now, like I said, this video is going to be a rebuttal to a ministry called Kingdom in Context and also a ministry called Wretched TV or Wretched Network. In this video, we're finally going to be addressing the creation ideal argument as well as some passages in the Brit Hadashah or the AKA New Testament. So definitely some stuff that we have intentionally not addressed so far just because we knew we was going to be addressing it in this video. So with all that being said, let's go ahead and start out with our first ministry tonight that we're going to be rebutting, and that is a ministry called Kingdom in Context. The entire book is relevant for us today. And we would happen to agree, the entire book, the entire Bible, the entire set of scriptures is still relevant for us today, including all of the regulations on polygyny, all of the instances where the faithful men and women of scripture practice this form of marriage, the entire Bible and everything in context. So what's interesting to me is that uh, a person can, can argue and try to debate for this concept that it's, that they think it's something just because, um, there's no legitimate law to punish someone if they do it, right. right? So people say, well, God allows it, therefore it's okay. Well, God did allow it, you're right. 
There's some instances where it was allowed and no one's punished for having more than one wife. Um, and that, you know, some people have theorized that's just because of the, the caretaking involved of what happens according to the law. So that when you do take another wife, sometimes it was given to you by other people to take care of her. Unfortunately, um, there's provisions and, and rules about how you treat a wife you love and a wife you don't love yeah. and the children that come from that. <laughs> we read about that later. To the contrary, it's actually fortunate that there are regulations telling people how to go about this type of marriage. And you're right in that no one in Scripture was ever condemned or punished for having more than one wife. The reason for that is because Scripture never prohibits it and never condemns it. And the people of Scripture for thousands of years understood that it was okay with Yahweh to have more than one wife. We even see Yahweh himself rewarding Leah for giving her handmaiden to her husband. In essence, she was rewarded for giving her husband an additional wife. We also see Yahweh giving multiple wives to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 8, Yahweh gave the wives of Saul to David. So, not only is it never prohibited, not only is there regulations guiding us in how to go about polygyny, but there's also ample evidence to show that Yahweh endorses this type of lifestyle. Um, the point is, this is a subject that I feel needs to be rightly divided yeah. and carefully divided. And you're correct here as well. This is a subject that needs to be rightly divided and correctly divided. And when you take the entire context of Scripture into account, and not just certain passages by themselves out of context, we see what Scripture is actually teaching, that polygyny is a valid form of marriage according to Yahweh and the Scriptures. And we see... Um kind of a trend of popularity of polygyny or polygamy, whatever you want to call it, um, plural marriage, uh, within this community. Now here they're talking about the community being the Torah community or the Messianic community. And yeah, more and more people are coming to the understanding that this is a valid scriptural form of marriage, even for today, and that nowhere in scripture does it prohibit a man taking more than one wife. And the reason more and more people, especially within the Messianic community, coming to understand this is because, like many of us, we come out of mainstream denominations and ways of thinking, and we've realized that the entire word is still for us today. So we start questioning what we've been taught in the past. We start questioning our traditions that we've been spoon-fed and force-fed down our throats. And one of the things that we start questioning, or a lot of us start questioning, is marriage, both monogamy and polygyny. So Messianics are a questioning bunch. We do that. We've come to learn a lot of truth by questioning. And it just so happens that plural marriage is one of those things that we happen to question more often than the mainstreamers do. 
Now, unfortunately, in their videos, Kingdom and Context engages in the same kind of poisoning of the well that David Wilbur did in his videos regarding plural marriage. That's a, it's about that dirty word, polygamy. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, this one is basically... Plural marriage. Yeah, so I, I want to make it very clear that we, we're not saying that plural marriage is, quote, sin. That there is a commandment that says thou shalt not. But we feel like, you know, it can be a very bad idea. So here you just heard them say and try to poison the well by saying that dirty word, polygamy, instead of actually showing you and teaching you what scripture has to say about this subject. Now, fortunately, they understand that plural marriage is not a sin because it's not, because it's not prohibited anywhere in scripture. But then they go on to try and continue poisoning the well by implying that plural marriage is a bad idea without giving any reasoning or justification as to why. Now, that would be very important if you're trying to convince someone that something is a bad idea. They need to know why it's a bad idea. And alternatively, also, what else would be a good idea in lieu of that? Presumably, they would be implying that monogamy is the good idea, but saying that polygyny is a bad idea without giving any scriptural justification or justification otherwise, well, that's just poisoning the well and trying to get your mind in the way they're thinking about the subject instead of the way scripture wants you to focus and think about the subject. Again, scripture should change us. We should not try and change scripture. But while they're still studying out, they sometimes focus, you know, very biasly on certain phrases and skip over entire context and portions of other phrases yeah. to support a very specific narrative of yeah. polygamy. Now here they're trying to make it seem as though those of us who understand what scripture says about plural marriage are doing so and coming to this conclusion because we're doing it in a biased manner and skipping over various passages and other contexts. Any of you out there who have actually followed through this series on polygyny, now you're starting to understand that those who oppose polygyny are doing so out of bias and skipping context and generally based on tradition and what they're used to and their feelings which could be theirs and or their spouses. And that's not the way we need to go about discerning truth. We need to go off what scripture says, not what we feel about a subject, not what our spouse feels about the subject. Now, the actual practice of it, that's a separate subject. As far as the truth of the matter goes, it's not based on what we feel. The truth does not care about your feelings. So once again, here they're trying to reach those who are just now studying it or learn more about it. They're poisoning the well and making these people think that if they come to a decision or a conclusion other than what Kingdom and Context has reached, that they're doing so in a biased manner and that they're doing so by skipping over context. However, like we said, 
those who oppose polygyny generally are the ones who massively skip over context. In fact, in these two videos from Kingdom and Context that we reviewed and are using clips from, not once did I ever hear them bring up and address the situation where Leah was rewarded for giving her husband an additional wife. Or where David was blessed by Yahweh with additional wives. That was never addressed, so that's skipping over context. It's very simple example given to us by the creator at creation. Yeah. He made a man and a woman, and just one of each. Yeah. It was only Eve created. There was not multiple women created. Yeah. The father didn't bring a harem up to Adam and said, here you go. He brought yeah. one woman. <laughs> it was Adam and Eve, not Adam, Eve, Jackie, Heather, and Donna. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it, it's just one woman, one man. It's very yeah. simple. It was Adam and right? Eve, not Adam and Eve, and Heather and Jackie. <laughs> So time and time again, lots of people bring up this issue of how it was at the beginning. They try to appeal to the creation model as if that's justification for a monogamy-only standard. However, it does not hold any weight, and it's invalid as an argument against polygyny when we take the entire set of scriptures into context. What we see in the creation account regarding Adam and Eve and their marriage together is a descriptive story, not a prescriptive command. So if we're going to take this as a prescriptive command, how far are we going to take it? Check this out, for instance. Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 22. So Elohim caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And the rib which Yahweh Elohim had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. So are we now to say that we can only have a wife if she's created from one of our very own ribs? No, that's just silly. I mean, Martin Luther used to refer to his wife as his rib, but that was metaphorical and kind of neat, I think. But Anyways, we cannot take this as a prescriptive command because there is no command of one man and one woman. It's all assumed. It's all eisegeted. And it doesn't hold up when you examine the entirety of Scripture instead of taking just certain passages. Now also consider this from the creation account. Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, yet they were not ashamed. So once again, if we go back to the creation model, should we be walking around naked all the time? I mean, those who out there who use this argument of the creation model or the creation argument, I have yet to see any of them fully nude trying to teach this thing. So. How much of the creation model are they going to go after? Just what suits them and their traditions? Or are they going to be consistent in their argument? I mean, think about it. How silly do we have to be to think that this is prescriptive for everyone nowadays post-fall? It's not. It's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. Now also consider this. At creation, 
Yahweh tells them in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, And Elohim said, See, I have given you every plant that yields seed which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it is for food. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9 and 16. Out of the ground Yahweh Elohim made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, with a tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Yahweh Elohim commanded the man, saying, Eat of every tree of the garden. And again, Genesis chapter 3, verse 2. And the woman said to the Nahash, We are to eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So by using the creation model or the creation argument, we can also make a good case that at creation, they were vegetarians eating the fruit and the plants that were created. Now, I don't care one way or the other if they ate meat in the creation or not, but we know that it considering the entire context of Scripture, that eating meat is permitted, and there's even a case that can be made that eating meat is commanded, almost, at Passover when it tells you to take the lamb for your family. So are we to contradict the Passover commandment? Are we to condemn everyone in Scripture who ate meat because the creation model pretty much tells us to be vegetarian? I mean, no. Just because it was a certain way back in the garden does not mean that is prescriptive for everyone from there on out. We are not to be walking around naked in front of each other. We, it's okay to eat meat. That's obvious from the rest of the context of the entirety of Scripture. And when we take the entirety of Scripture into account, it's also okay to have more than one wife. Because the appeal to the creation model simply falls flat. And we don't ascribe to no Lilith preham before yeah. you even none of that Gnostic <laughs> stuff. No, because that's not in the text. With the and that's good. We don't either. For the exact same reason. Because it does not come from Scripture. However, what we do get from Scripture is that plural marriage is okay. But the only time he said it's not good is when Adam was alone. And then to remedy what was not good and make it good, he just gave him one woman. Yeah. Yes, he added to Adam just one woman, but he added to David at least two women. And we can also see in the example from Adam and Eve that Eve was made from Adam's rib and that Eve was brought to Adam fully naked. They were both naked and there was no problem with that. That's the creation model. So again, if you're going to go by the creation model, you're going to be completely naked all the time, like they were at creation, and everyone on earth is going to be okay with you being naked like the situation was at creation. Because at creation, everyone on earth was okay with everyone else being naked. So how far are we going to take this? Are we going to correctly divide the word and understand it as descriptive? Or are we incorrectly going to divide the word and take it as prescriptive? Right. So he not only did he give us Adam. Okay. So Adam was a king, being the first and the elder of all men. Yeah. Okay. So Adam was not a king. No. 
for the same reason that we don't ascribe to the little thing because it's not in scripture. It also wouldn't make sense to call Adam a king because there was no nation, there was no people to be a king over because it was just him and Eve. Again, you're going back to the creation model. So Adam was not a king. And that means that and Adam was considered righteous, yeah. that he followed God's ways. Yeah. And for the most part, that's correct. But take into account that due to Adam, sin entered the world. Scripture tells us that through one man, Adam, sin did enter the world because he listened to the voice of his wife. The, the Torah does not instruct marrying multiple women. Right. And it gives you the precedent, like you read from Genesis 2, right off the bat, of one person, mm -hmm. one woman, one man, right? Actually, there is a legitimate case to be made that the Torah does instruct plural marriage. Take the Leverett marriage laws, for example. It does not give any indication whatsoever, any leeway for if the surviving brother is already married. It just tells them to marry the deceased brother's wife to raise up seed to the deceased brother. There is no allowance made for whether the existing surviving brother is already married or not. And this whole idea of one woman, one man does not come from Scripture. You do not read that from Scripture. That's not what you draw out exegetically that is read back into Scripture eisegetically. And the verse that most people refer to when they say this kind of thing that doesn't come from Scripture, what they're eisegetically reading back into Scripture is from this verse in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now there's two things to bring up real quick on this point to set it to rest hopefully forever for anyone watching this. Number one, are we really going to go off the idea that since it has husband and wife in singular, especially the wife part in the singular, that that is prescribing monogamy only? How would that apply if we took this same standard, the same way of reasoning and being consistent throughout the rest of scripture? How would this work out for us? Because as we read in Exodus chapter 13, verse 18, And you shall inform your son in that day, saying, It is because of what Yahweh did for me when I came up from Mitzrayim. Is that to say that, oh, Scripture's stating right here that we are only to have one son, because it's used in the singular. Or how about this? Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to set it apart. Six days you labor and shall do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Yahweh your Elohim. You do not do any work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Now notice here that the word son is in the singular, the word daughter is in the singular, male servant is singular, female servant is singular, and stranger is singular. So is this a command from Scripture that we are to only have one son, 
one daughter, one male servant, one female servant, and one stranger that we can help at any one time. I mean, are we going to be consistent with how we interpret these verses? Or is it just the case with this one verse in Genesis 2.24? And once again, Proverbs chapter 29. Discipline your son, and he brings you rest and delight to your life. So here we've got the singular son and the singular he. So is this a command from Scripture again to only have one son? No. As we can plainly see, Scripture does not tell us that we can only have one son, nor does Scripture tell us that we can only have one daughter, or that we can only help one stranger who's within our gates at any one time. Likewise, if we're going to be consistent and correctly divide the word, then we have to accept and admit that Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 is not a command, it's not a prescription for monogamy only. It's not saying there's to be only one man and one wife. It's not saying that a marriage is to be only one man and one woman. Now, the second point is that if this verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, were a prescriptive command, then lots of people would be guilty of sin and breaking the Torah. Who am I talking about? Celibate people. People like Elijah. People like Paul. People like most of the disciples and the apostles. But most especially, people like our Master and Messiah, Yeshua. Pause. Let's read it again. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice that first part right there. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. Shall. So if this is a prescriptive command, it's definitely commanding a man to leave his father and mother and get married. And anyone who does not get married is guilty of sin because they're breaking the Torah. But we know this is not true because celibacy, remaining unmarried, is not prohibited in Scripture. Many of the great men in faith were celibate. So once again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, is not a command. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It is not saying that marriage is to be between only one man and one woman. Likewise, the argument that marriage should be based on the creation model does not hold weight. And we think that Deuteronomy 17 is a wonderful example of the Father encouraging us that that's not the ideal example. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 17. When you come to the land which Yahweh your Elohim is giving you, and shall possess it, and shall dwell in it, and you shall say, Let me set a sovereign over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall certainly set a sovereign over you, whom Yahweh your Elohim shall choose. 
set a sovereign over you from among your brothers, you are not allowed to set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he is not to increase horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Mitzrayim to increase horses. For Yahweh has said to you, Do not return that way again, and he is not to increase wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor is he to greatly increase silver and gold for himself. So, unless God just came up with a new rule, then in Deuteronomy 17, 17, where it tells the kings to not multiply wives, okay? So here in Deuteronomy 17, this is not a new rule. In fact, there is no rule whatsoever forbidding any man from having more than one wife. We see it's not a new rule because we see the example of Abraham before this. We also see the example of Jacob before this. So this is not a new rule. It's not even a prohibition against plural marriage for anyone, not even kings specifically. Even though during the days of Deuteronomy, they didn't have one yet. Yeah. The father knew they were going to have one, so he's already given them laws ahead of time, knowing that they're going to, you know, Yeah, call we want to be like everybody else. Give us a yes. king. <laughs> okay, so Adam was a king. So if in Deuteronomy they hadn't had a king yet, then this contradicts the other statement where he stated that Adam was a king. But of course we know Adam was not a king for the reasons stated previously and from what you can see in Scripture itself. So when he's stating that in Deuteronomy they hadn't had a king yet, he's absolutely correct. But the statement of Adam being a king is wrong. But one of the requirements of the king was they can only have one wife, and they weren't supposed to multiply horses as well, which is yeah. something interesting because we kind of see Solomon do both. He did, you know? but he, he says, well, he also multiplied gold and silver to he himself. Did, I true. mean, he pretty much violated yeah, every all of single Deuteronomy seventeen seventeen. He one violates of those it. Yeah. Parents, yeah. Um, now, as far as the kings, he's trying to encourage them right off the bat. If you're a king, right, you shouldn't have multiple wives. Don't multiply money. Don't multiply horses. Now, this is a very interesting and unique argument. Most people who oppose plural marriage will state this section of verses, especially Deuteronomy 17, 17, stating that a man, or specifically a king, should not have more than one wife. However, they will not be consistent in the gold and horses area. Here, with kingdom and context, they are trying to be consistent in saying that kings should only, according to Deuteronomy, that kings should only have one wife, that kings should only have one horse, and that kings should only have one piece of gold. Now, how much sense does that make? And in fact, it actually contradicts Scripture when Yahweh tells King Shlomo, King Solomon, that he will give him riches. 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 5, 9, and 11 through 13. At Gibbon, Yahweh appeared to Shlomo in a dream by night, and Elohim said, Ask what I should give you. Shlomo said, Shall you then give to your servant an understanding heart to rule your people, to discern between good and evil? For who is able to rule this great people of yours? So Elohim said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked long life for yourself, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand right ruling. See, I shall do according to your words. See, 
I shall give you a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like you before you, and none like you shall arise after you. And I shall also give you what you have not asked, both riches and esteem, so that there shall not be anyone like you among the sovereigns all your days. So when we take the entirety of Scripture into context, then we know that Deuteronomy chapter 17 is not forbidding a king or anyone from having more than one wife. Being consistent, we can also see that Deuteronomy chapter 17 is not forbidding a king or anyone from having more than one piece of gold or more than one piece of silver. Because we see from Scripture for ourselves that because King Solomon asked for wisdom in ruling Yahweh's people, that Yahweh said that he would give him riches, not just one piece of gold, riches. And it goes on to say that during the time of King Solomon's reign, that silver was as common as the stones on the ground, and that he had 40,000 or so horses. He also had a thousand wives, but we can see that Deuteronomy 17 is not forbidding a king or anyone from having multiple wives, multiple pieces of silver and gold, multiple horses, take everything properly into context so that we can rightly divide the word. If Deuteronomy 17 is forbidding a king from having more than one piece of gold, then breaking that would be sin. And therefore, Yahweh committed sin by giving Solomon more than one piece of gold. Heaven forbid. We can also take everything into context and see that if Deuteronomy 17 was forbidding kings from having more than one wife, that Yahweh committed sin by giving David multiple wives. Heaven forbid. So no, once we take the entirety of Scripture into context and not just select verses out of context, once we take the entirety of Scripture into context, we see that Deuteronomy 17 is not forbidding kings specifically or men in general from having more than one wife, or from having more than one horse, or from having more than one piece of gold and silver. So when we see David multiply wives, and we see Solomon multiply wives, it was not intended. They were actually breaking the command. So people who yeah. say there's no law against it are clearly ignoring this uh, here in Deuteronomy, and they're yeah, also ignoring uh... everything in the New Testament. So we'll get to the issue of the New Testament in just a moment. But as we can clearly see, when we rightly divide the word, when we take everything into context, here in Deuteronomy, this is not a command, this is not a law against plural marriage. I think it's 1 it. Timothy 2.3, I believe, is the first mentioned by Paul, talking about a deacon or elder yeah. should be a man of but one wife. What do we read in 1 Timothy 3.2? A deacon, an overseer, someone that's respectable in the word, someone that can lead and teach, should have but one wife, okay? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. An overseer, then, should be blameless, the husband of one wife, sober, sensible, 
orderly, kind to strangers, able to teach, not given to wine, no brawler but gentle, not quarrelsome, no lover of silver, one who rules his own house well, having his children in subjection with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he look after the assembly of Elohim? So here's another common argument against plural marriage. At the face of it, it sounds like it's a valid argument against it, but when you take everything into context, when you study this out, when you look for yourselves, you find that this argument does not hold water. So first and foremost, if we just take another look at this real quick, we can see that this passage is speaking about elders of the assembly specifically, just elders. So if we were to take this into context on a surface level, we would have to admit that this is only for the elders, the overseers, but not everyone in general. So that's on the face of it. However, when we actually get deeper into the word to understand this, how they meant it when they originally wrote it, we can see here that the word in Greek for one in this passage is Strong's G3391. This is the word Mia, and Mia can be translated something as one or first or a. So Matthew 3, 2 through 5 could be translated as the husband of one wife, or it could be translated as the husband of a wife, or it could be translated as the husband of first wife. Now let's test this to see if any of these would be better or if they would all be valid on their own and equally or how this would work out. If it said husband of one wife, okay, that's fine. But again, it only goes back to specifically the elders, the overseers. If we translate it as the husband of a wife, that would hold up with the rest of this passage about ruling his house well. So you would need to have a family unit with at least a wife. And then it goes on to say having his children in subjection. Well, to properly have children, you need to be married for both men and women. So husband of a wife would also work in this passage and would be a valid translation. Now, how would this work if we translated it as the husband of his first wife? This would also work. Because the rest of scripture taking it into context forbids divorce except on the grounds of adultery. So this passage, if we translated it as the husband of his first wife, would be stating something to the effect of he cannot be improperly divorced. He should still be married to the wife he was originally married to. Not counting divorce due to adultery and not counting being a widower but that he was faithful and that he stayed married to the woman he originally got married to. So this would fit in with the rest of Scripture. But how about the husband of one wife, meaning one singular and no more than one wife? This would not fit into Scripture, the rest of it in context. Because as we see from the rest of Scripture, there is no prohibition for anyone kings or men in general, 
there's no prohibition against having more than one wife. So translating this and understanding it as the husband of only one single wife would be in contradiction to the rest of Scripture, and Scripture does not contradict itself. It's only our understanding of Scripture that is, at times, contradictory. However, when we come to the correct understanding that Scripture allows for plural marriage, this passage makes a lot more sense, and Scripture becomes harmonious. But is it true that this word mia can be translated as one or first or a? Do we see that other places in Scripture? Well, in fact, we do. For instance, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, For truly I say to you, till the heaven and earth pass away, one yod or one tittle shall by no means pass from the Torah till all be done. The word here in Greek being the word mia. Now, it's also translated in other translations, such as the ESV, as, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So there's one witness. Mark chapter 16, verse 2. And very early on day one of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, here in the ESV, it states, And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So, in fact, we see from the evidence of Scripture that this word Mia can be translated in a variety of ways as one or first or a. But why can it just mean all three at the same time? Well, it's kind of hard to translate that into English as all three at the same time, but we can have the understanding and know what this word means for ourselves when we look at passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Another way that we know that 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 is not limiting a bishop or an overseer specifically or men in general from having only one wife at a time is because in Greek, there is a word that means only one, single, no more than one. And that word is Strong's G3441, monos. And it means single, only one. Here you can see the outline of biblical usage from blueletterbible.org, the Strong's definition, Backing this interpretation up, meaning sole or single, the only one. Thayer's states the exact same thing, meaning one only. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, the only one. So if 1 Timothy 3.2 wanted to say that a bishop or an overseer could only have one wife monogamously and no more, they could have very well use this word monos from the Greek to indicate that and tell us what they specifically meant. In fact, this word is used in other places in Scripture to denote something of a singular nature that's one alone and no other. For instance, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, But he answering said, It has been written, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. 
So here we're saying that man shall not live by bread by itself and only bread and just that one thing. This word monos in Matthew 4, 4 is indicating something that's single and only one and by itself. And what Yeshua is referring to is the bread, the bread alone, the bread by itself, the bread alone. And again, we read in John chapter 5, verse 44. How are you able to believe when you are receiving esteem from one another and the esteem that is from the only Elohim you do not seek? Esteem that is from the manos Elohim you do not seek. So here in John 5.44, this word manos is used to reference Yahweh himself, that Yahweh alone is God, that Yahweh alone is Elohim. He's the one single, only one God. So that's the word manos in contradiction to the word mia that's used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. If the writer of 1 Timothy wanted to indicate that an elder an overseer, a bishop, or even men in general were to have only one single wife at a time. They could have wrote specifically monos instead of mia, but they didn't. They used the word mia to not prohibit an overseer from having more than one wife, but rather to indicate that an elder and overseer should be married, first of all, and that he should be married to his first wife and not unrighteously divorced. Yeah. <laughs> also in Titus 1.6, I believe it's Titus 1.6, um, we have another mention of the same concept. A man, you know, any, any leader in the church, um, he needs to be of one wife. He can't have multiple wives. So, Titus chapter 1, verse 6. If anyone is unreprovable, the husband of one wife, having believing children not accused of loose behavior or unruly. So this one is fairly easy. This again uses the Greek word mia, not manos. It's saying the exact same thing as 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Scripture is harmonious when we take everything into context and understand what they are telling us. The writer of Titus is also not limiting the leaders and the elders of the assembly to only one wife, nor are they limiting men in general from having only one wife. Once again, they could have easily and very well have used the word manos instead of mia if they wanted to limit the leaders of the assembly to having only one wife. I think it's hilarious to try to say someone could acknowledge the fact that we have leaders amongst the body, but yet somehow this rule doesn't apply to them. Yeah. Oh no, this rule applies to the leaders in the body, but this rule does not prohibit plural marriage. And this rule does not apply to men in general. So yes, this rule does apply, but you need to understand it correctly and rightly divide the word in context. More wives, more problems, people. Like, yeah. it didn't seem like anyone was really enjoying that situation very much. So is it really more wives and more problems? This is 
so not thought out. On the surface, this is indicating that a woman is a problem. And when you get a wife, you're inheriting and taking on a problem. And by taking on more wives, you're taking on more problems. But is that scriptural? I mean, it doesn't even make sense from a common sense level, but is it scriptural? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. A capable wife is the crown of her husband, but one causing shame is like rottenness in his bones. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. He who has found a wife has found good and receives favor from Yahweh. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 14. Houses and riches are the inheritance from fathers, but an understanding wife is from Yahweh. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. Who does find a capable wife? For she is worth far more than rubies. Proverbs chapter 31, verse 12. She shall do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Etc., etc. Scripture goes on to extol the virtues of a wonderful and good, capable wife, that her worth is worth far more than rubies. Now, yes, there are examples of some women in Scripture who were not good wives. They were contentious. They were argumentative. They brought in all kinds of issues. But we can see, for the most part, women are a good thing. Wives are a good thing. Scripture even tells us that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Thing, and that he receives favor from Yahweh. So in contrast, what we can see from Scripture is that more wives, more good. More wives, more favor. And we can see this exemplified in the life of Jacob, who had four wives, and he had lots of children. David had lots of children because he had multiple wives. Abraham had lots of children because he had multiple wives. So the statement of more wives, more problems is not scripturally based. And that's what we need to base our beliefs, our doctrines, our dogma on is scripture, not our feelings, not our modern culture, not our church traditions of monogamy only. We need to base our beliefs on scripture. Yeah. It didn't seem like anyone was really enjoying that situation very much. Yeah, Leah was constantly jealous of Rachel. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was bad. But is this true? Do we get this concept from Scripture that Leah was constantly jealous of Rachel? Genesis chapter 30, verse 1. And when Rahel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rahel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Give me children or else I am going to die. So just to still man their argument here, they more than likely meant to indicate that Rachel was envious of Leah instead of the other way around. So that's probably what they meant to say. We'll just go ahead and give them that at the moment, since we see it clearly from Scripture that it was Rachel who envied her sister. But was it due to plural marriage? Was it due to Jacob having more than one wife? No. We can see from Scripture that Rachel's envy of Leah was due to childbearing, not plural marriage. Because if we continue to read in Scripture, 
we see that both Rachel and Leah gave their husband additional wives. So they were not envious due to plural marriage. They had zero problem with plural marriage. We can see the same thing happen with Sarah and Hagar and Abram. Genesis chapter 16, verses 2 through 4. And Sarai said to Abram, See, Yahweh has kept me from bearing children. Please go in to my female servant. It might be that I am built up by her. And he went in to Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. So once again, the issue with Abram and Sarai and Hagar is not because of plural marriage. Sarai gave her husband an additional wife, and they were totally fine with that. There was no issue, just like everyone else in Scripture had no issue with plural marriage. Sarai had zero issue with Hagar until a child was born. So once again, the issue comes across from childbearing or barrenness, because barrenness is a theme throughout Scripture as well, but that's another subject. The issue is not with plural marriage. Plural marriage does not cause these issues. There are other factors that you have to understand and realize are there if you want to correctly divide the word. The issue we see from the story of Abram and Sarai and Hagar and with Jacob, Leah, and Rachel is due to childbearing or barrenness. More wives, more problems, people. like. But actually, is it more wives, more problems? No, we've already listed a few reasons why this is untrue already. But once you start to take everything into context and understand the situation that arises in a polygynous situation, it's not more wives, more problems. In fact, it's more wives, more time for everyone involved. Generally, more time for the women, more so than the man. But things get done a lot quicker. And therefore, everyone has more time for other things, more times for themselves, more time for each other, but they have more time because things get done a lot quicker with more hands to help out. More time, more experience. As we go through things in life, we bring our own experience to the situation to resolve the situation, hopefully in a beneficial manner. But when you have more people in the family, more adults who have life experience, you have more experience to bring to any situation that may arise. More wives, more support. There's more shoulders to cry on, more people to support you in times of need for the women and the men. In a polygynous marriage, you have women who can support other women in that marriage in ways that only a woman can because men and women are different. Contrary to modern society, men and women are different. Men and women understand things differently. And this can be important in various situations that arise during a marriage. With more wives, more women to un there to understand things in the way that only a woman can, more wives, more support. More wives, more education as well. This kind of ties in to the more experience aspect. 
Because the more adults that are in the marriage, the more education you bring to the table in order to adequately and efficiently take care of a situation, whatever situation it is, whether it be finances or child rearing or marriage resolution or taxes or what have you. More wives, more education. And a lot of times when there's more wives, there's more income. Instead of only a man and a woman bringing their income into the marriage, now you can have three incomes coming in. Or if you're in a situation where the wife stays home or even the husband stays home and you've only got one income, then you bring in another wife, that could open up the door to having now two incomes instead of just one. So more wives, more income. All depends on how the man structures his family and decides to run his family, but it definitely opens up the door. So more wives, more problems? No. More wives, more time. More wives, more support. More wives, more experience. More wives, more education. More wives, more income. Just the opposite of what they're trying to claim here. Then we also have Jacob, right? With Laban's shenanigans. He has mm -hmm. to marry Leah first. Seven years later, he gets to marry Rachel. Now he's got two wives. Then what happens? Both of them deal with barrenness. Mm -hmm. But do both of them deal with barrenness? No. As we just saw from Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, Leah was having children, but it was Rachel who was barren at that time. Now, eventually, Leah stopped bearing children, and therefore she gave her handmaid to Jacob, who bore him children then as well. And then afterwards, Rachel bore children. So it wasn't due to polygamy that Jacob dealt with barrenness because Jacob did not deal with barrenness at all. He had multiple wives to give him children, even if one wife was not pregnant. So Jacob didn't deal with barrenness, and the specific reason that he did not deal with barrenness was because of polygyny. But it does not. I mean, we've got a, a huge amount of rules and yeah. instructions of God that are provisions. For he things. legislates all kinds yeah. of sins. Yeah. <laughs> what? For he things. legislates all kinds yeah. of sins. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This really stuck out to me when I first heard it. That God legislates sin. Words are important, and I think we need to define the words that we're using so that we know what is being said when we say it. So what does legislate mean? Legislate, in our common usage, in the way we live now in our culture, means to make or enact laws, or to mandate something, to establish something, or to regulate by as if by legislation. So no, Yahweh does not mandate sin. Yahweh does not establish sin, nor does Yahweh regulate sin. In fact, Scripture, the Torah, prohibits sin. Just the opposite. He legislates all kinds yeah. of sins. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think that what they're trying to say here, just to try to steal man what they're arguing, I don't think what they're trying to say is that God promotes sin or that God tells us to sin. 
I don't think that's what they're saying here or what they're trying to say. Instead, what I think Kingdom in Context is trying to say here is that God puts provisions in place for when sin is committed, ways to take care and deal with the after effects of the sin that was committed. I think that's what they're trying to say here, just to give them the, the benefit of the doubt, because it's it's very shocking for any Christian to say that God mandates and tells us to sin. So I don't think that's what they're trying to say here. The, the scriptures and the, the Torah of God, the instructions of God, do not command you to take more than one wife. Right. It says take one woman. Well, again, we've already been over that. We've seen the scriptures, and nowhere in scripture does it say you can only have one wife. We looked at Genesis 2.24, doesn't say it there. We looked in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, doesn't say it there. We've looked in Titus 1.6, doesn't say it there. We've looked in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, doesn't say it there. Nowhere in scripture does it command a man to only take one woman. But he never encourages you to go off and get into that right. situation to begin with. Right. Does God never encourage you to go off and get into polygyny? What does scripture say? In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, we see the law of the leveret marriage. Here we can see that when a brother dwells with another brother and one of the brothers dies and they do not have a male heir, that the living brother, the surviving brother, is to marry the deceased brother's wife and raise up an heir to the deceased brother so that their lineage continues. And if you'll notice, in this commandment from Scripture, there is no provision as to whether or not the surviving brother is already married. However, when you review the laws against incest and other sexual sins, we see that it is forbidden for a man to marry his brother's wife. However, the condition here is that the brother is still alive. Taking everything into context, rightly dividing the entirety of Scripture, we can see that once a person dies, their spouse is no longer married to them. So therefore, if a brother dies, his surviving brother is not committing sin and he is not committing incest by marrying his deceased brother's wife. So the provision is that the brother cannot be alive when the other brother marries his wife. But there is no provision against the surviving brother marrying the woman if he is already married. Henceforth, again, we do not find a prohibition against polygyny, and in certain circumstances, God even commands us to live in this lifestyle. A lot of times what I'm seeing is these men are just saying that they think they're being called to this lifestyle, and they're telling their wives this is what we're going to do, and this is what the patriarchs did, and we are going to seek out this lifestyle. Okay, once again, those of us in the Messianic or Torah-believing community are questioning things that we have been taught all our lives. We are questioning things that have been taught from the pulpit. We are questioning the traditions that have been handed down to us to test and see whether they are from Scripture or not. 
plural marriage and marriage in general is one of those things. One of the things that we are discovering and learning from Scripture is that a man has authority over his household. He has authority over his wife, just as Yeshua has authority over the assembly, and Yahweh has authority over Yeshua. So therefore, from Scripture, it is the responsibility of a man to lead his household. And it's the responsibility of the wife to submit to her husband's leadership. So husbands are tasked for making the right decisions for their family. So both men and women are understanding that Scripture does not prohibit plural marriage. There are men who are discovering this because they're questioning, they're studying, they're learning, contrary to what we've been taught all this time, that plural marriage is acceptable according to Scripture. There are also women discovering this as well. So it's not always the man that's bringing this to the situation, to the marriage. But regardless, it is the wife's responsibility from Scripture to submit to the authority and the decisions of her husband. If she was not willing to be submissive, like Scripture tells her to be, then she should not have gotten married at all. If she does not trust her husband and did not trust her husband, then she should not have gotten married to him in the first place. But now that they are married, they need to stay married, except in the case of adultery, and the wife should submit to her husband. Yes, she should have input, and the husband should listen to her input. But at the end of the day, the final decision for the family rests with the husband, and the submission to his decisions is on her. She needs to submit to her husband and her husband's final decisions. And in some cases, I have seen women um, who have confided in me that they've been basically forced by their husbands into this lifestyle and they don't consent to it. So I have no way of knowing who it is that's spoken to Kingdom in Context and or what their situation is. I can only speak from my personal experience. And this is in regards to the Messianic or Christian community, not any cult like Mormonism. But from my own personal experience, I have only ever saw one family where the wife was forced into it. Every other plural family I know of, the wives and the husbands were in agreement. And in fact, there are several families that I know of where the wife is actively going out and seeking other women to join the family and to bring them under the headship of their husband. Once again, I don't know who Kingdom in Context has been speaking with. I can only speak from my personal experience. But from what I've seen in speaking with actual plural families, is that the wives are biblical. They are submitting to their husbands. They are in agreement with their husband's decisions. And they are in agreement with this plural lifestyle. So there's this issue going on within the Torah community where men are just sticking to, it's not a sin, it's not forbidden, God never said it was wrong, and then they're turning that into, they get to make this decision for their marriage and for their wife, and their wife doesn't 
have to consent to it because oh, it doesn't say in scripture anywhere that she has to consent. Well, yeah. I would argue yeah. a majority of the time it was those women's ideas to yes. bring other women into the marriages. Yeah. It wasn't necessarily the men coming and saying, hey, I think this is a great idea, honey. Why don't we go give this a shot? Now, once again, let me reiterate that a wife is to submit to her husband. If she's not willing to go according to scripture and submit to her husband, then she should not get married at all. If she is just simply unwilling to submit to that man, then she should not have gotten married to him to begin with. One nuance of having said all of that is that if at the time you got married, if that both of you, especially the husband, said that he would love and honor and cherish his wife, forsaking all others till death do they part, then he has made a vow that he would only be with her and only be monogamous for the rest of his life. That's the vow that he made. And he cannot change that vow that he made. That is a covenant that he has entered into between him and his wife and Yahweh. He cannot break that. However, he can be released from that if his wife comes to the understanding of what Scripture actually says about marriage. Now, if she does not release him from that vow, then in my own personal opinion, I would say that he is bound by his vow to remain to that woman for as long as they both shall live. Fortunately, Yahweh blessed me with coming into this understanding of what Scripture actually says about marriage before I got married. And because I believe this was something that needed to be disclosed before marriage, there were several relationships that I went through before I found the wife that I have now. And the wife that I have now was in full understanding of how I felt about this situation, about what marriage is from Scripture. She had met several plural families, understand that they did not have three heads and that they were normal. And she agreed to it beforehand. In fact, in our vows, her vows were forsaking all others until death do we part. Her vows also included love, honor, and obey. The whole submission thing as it comes from Scripture. My vows, on the other hand, were to love and cherish and did not include forsaking all others. So praise be to the Almighty that we were in this understanding before we got married and our vows are not at risk of being broken because of plural marriage, neither mine or hers. Now, all these years later, even with all that being said, with both of us in the understanding, we are still monogamous. It's just me and her. And that's fine. We have never felt the need or the desire or the calling to go out and find additional women to bring into the family. So it's not a requirement for everyone to go out and live in polygyny, even when we understand what it is that Scripture is telling us about marriage. And we also want to take this moment to invite Kingdom in Context to come on to the channel here and have a discussion about this subject or this video that's been made. Or if you so feel the need, instead of a one-on-one -on -one discussion, making a rebuttal video of your own to this one, 
we look forward to reviewing that as well. But just want to extend that opportunity to Keenum and Context if you would like to come on here and have a brotherly discussion about this particular subject. Yeah, you're going to see some stuff in there like David had 18,000 wives or whatever it was, and nowhere does the Bible say, and that was wrong. Okay, so first off, it's just silliness to say that David had like 18,000 wives. It's clear when we're looking at our scriptures, is nowhere near that. Solomon had the most number of wives, and he had only 1,000. So since it's so easy to prove and so silly to think, this is actually a true statement from someone. This leads me to think that he's just using this as a turn of phrase to say this to try to illustrate his point that David had a lot of wives. So we'll still man him on that. But we also want to say that he's correct. The Bible does not condemn polygyny. What is the Protestant Reformation slogan that might help us get this? And I think it's the analogy of Scripture, that the clear interprets the unclear, that the Bible interprets itself. Yes, the Bible interprets itself, and the clear interprets the unclear. So if you're unclear about what Scripture says about plural marriage, about polygyny, then take the clear parts to determine and help determine what it is that it's saying about polygyny. And it's clear that there is no prohibition in Scripture of polygyny whatsoever. It is clear that no one in Scripture was ever condemned or punished for having more than one wife. It is clear that Yahweh gave King David multiple wives. And it is clear that both Yahweh and Yeshua used polygyny as an analogy for their relationship to the people. Yahweh uses the analogy of being married to two women. Yeshua uses the analogy of being married to the five wise virgins. So it is clear that both Yahweh and Yeshua use the analogy of polygyny to describe their relationship to the people. It's clear there's no prohibition against polygyny. It's clear that no one was ever condemned or punished for polygyny. And it's clear that Yahweh engaged in polygyny by giving David multiple wives. All of that is crystal clear. So here's what we've got. In the beginning, God said that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, singular. And once again, this whole argument to Genesis 2.24 holds no weight when we take this reasoning and apply it to the rest of Scripture. Because if it's the singular wife in 2.24 that commands us to only have one wife ever, then we saw from other Scriptures that we are to only have one son, one daughter, one male servant, one female servant, and only one stranger at a time. So the argument does not hold weight. Teen, so it is clear from Genesis to the New Testament, uh, this is about one man, one woman. No, from Genesis to Revelation, it is clear that this is about a man marrying a woman. 
not about one man and one woman, because you don't find that in Scripture. You find monogamous relationships in Scripture. You also find polygynous relationships in Scripture, which completely destroys the argument he just made. In addition, you never find a commandment in Scripture stating that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. There is no commandment like that anywhere in Scripture. Because the truth of the matter is that Scripture does not prohibit a man from having more than one woman. Scripture does not command a man and a woman to be in a monogamous relationship, and it does not command one man and one woman in order to make a marriage. Scripture is clear that celibacy is acceptable. Scripture is clear that monogamy is acceptable. Scripture is also clear that a man having more than one wife is acceptable. That's just Scripture. That's just what we get from the clear reading and the clear study and the clear exegesis from Scripture. And that's just the God-honest truth. So thank you so much for joining us for this teaching. Once again, this ends the teaching series on polygyny. We're likely to redo this in a couple of years just to make it a little bit more stylish and a little bit more well put together. Can't change scripture. Scripture is still going to state that plural marriage is okay, but we might redo it in a couple of years. But right now, this is the last video in this series. This playlist for this series is down below in the description. Feel free to go watch the series from beginning to end. And if you happen to learn anything from this particular video and this teaching, make sure to go down below and let us know in the comments what it is that you learned from this. If you happen to disagree, let us know what it is you disagree about. Or if you just want to say hi, we always love hearing from you guys. While you're down there, make sure to hit that subscribe button and ring the bell so that you're notified every time that we go live or when we upload a new on-demand video. Hit that like button and also hit that share button and share it around with someone that you may know. Thank you for joining us for another production from God Honest Truth Ministries. We hope that we have been of service to you. And if you have any feedback, then please reach out to us by email. And make sure to visit our website at GodHonestTruth.com for more information, resources, and contact.